It's really, really good to be back at Grace Life. Um, I was really careful to say Grace Life. I always want to say Grace Road, and so this morning I was thinking, I have to say Grace Life and not mess it up. It's good to be back, as Caleb said, and uh, to see you all, to reconnect, and have the opportunity to preach. And uh, so thank you so much for the opportunity. It really is good to be here. Again, I'm Cody at Grace Road, the teaching pastor. Before there, uh, I was on the mission field in Florence, Italy for uh, eight and a half years. And uh, But really, really thankful to be here and to be able to uh, minister, uh, hopefully, and be an encouragement to you today. Uh, before we jump in, let me, let me go ahead and pray. Can we pray this morning? Father, we are, again, grateful that we can gather this morning for corporate worship. Father, we're grateful that we uh, are able to worship you with united voices as we sing together. Father, we worship you with united hearts as we fellowship together. And Lord, we worship you with united minds as we think on you together. And so Lord, we're just so thankful for your word, which instructs every aspect of our worship. And Lord, we want to say this morning that we believe that your, your word is inspired, uh, that it's infallible, that it's without error, that it's trustworthy. And so Lord, this morning we open it with uh, expectation uh, we're expecting for what it reveals about you, about your son, about your spirit. And we're expecting for what it will produce in us today. Father, we pray now, Lord, would you, would you bless our time together, that we, we approach this time with humble hearts, or that we approach this time with hungry minds as we uh, grow in our knowledge of you. And Lord, may it all lead us to great worship, greater worship and devotion. So Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. I want to invite your attention this morning to the end of the Gospel of Luke. So Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to be today. And uh, we're actually just going to look at the very last verses of the Gospel of Luke. And, and, and if you didn't know, Luke is the longest Gospel of the four Gospels. It's 24 chapters, so Luke 24. And again, we're just going to look at the last few verses. And even though the, the last few ver- verses of the longest Gospel... They are just so important that we can't miss or skip over. And if you're familiar with the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, this is the account of Easter morning, uh, that Jesus is resurrected. He's appeared to disciples. He's had this conversation with them on the road to Emmaus, if you remember this, and then back with other disciples in Jerusalem. And between verse 49... And verse 50, where we're going to start is verse 50. But in between those two verses, we know that there's 40 days. There's a 40-day period. And these are 40 days when Jesus is showing himself to other people. He's continuing to teach about the kingdom of God. And so here's Jesus. He's resurrected, been teaching and preaching. After 40 days, we read in verse 50. This is where we're going to start. Luke 24, verse 50 through the end of the book here. It says, and he, Jesus, led them, the disciples, out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple, blessing God. Okay, and so uh, this final passage of Luke tells us about what's called the ascension of of Jesus. It's this moment when, when the resurrected Christ, he leads the disciples out of town just a little bit, and he offers them a benediction, right? He, he, he blesses them, and he ascends up into heaven. 
right? And this moment, of course, is incredibly significant. I mean, can you imagine, first of all, seeing the resurrected Jesus, just that alone, and then him ascend to heaven? In fact, the ascension of Jesus and everything that it signifies, I mean, it's been considered an essential part of the orthodox belief in Jesus. So, for example, the earliest creeds in church history, these are uh, confessions of faith, summaries of belief that kind of defined orthodox Christian doctrine, they always mention the ascension of Jesus along with the birth, death, and resurrection. Okay, so for example, the historic Apostles' Creed, maybe you've heard of that before, it says in the section about Jesus, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Again, the ascension is mentioned alongside Jesus' deity, his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his eventual return. Again, it's an important part of our understanding of who Jesus is. Another creed, the Nicene Creed, another very important early church creed, I won't read it all, but includes the ascension as well as in its statement of belief. And so again, this moment that we just read about, the end of of Luke, has long been rightly recognized as this important part of our understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And yet the thing is, we don't really talk about this event all that much, I don't think, or, or, or think about this essential doctrine of Jesus. I mean, I've been in church really my whole life, and I really can't recall a whole lot of talk about the ascension of Jesus other than it happened. Not so much about its significance. What are the implications of it? What does that mean? Why did Jesus ascend to heaven? And, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think there's a lot of reasons the ascension is an often neglected or ignored doctrine. First of all, it's really just not talked a lot about in Scripture. In other words, the narrative of it, the, 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 the Scripture's description of it, it's given here at the end of Luke. It's talked about at the beginning of Acts, and even though it's debated, it's at the end of Mark. But that's it. And so it might be easy to think, well, I mean... It must not be that important if it's spoken of really in only a handful of verses in the entire Bible. Second, I think it's neglected because because the implications are a little unclear. Like, it's hard to understand why it's important that Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection. I mean, in my mind, it would be easy to think, I mean, the resurrection, I mean, that was surely enough, right? I mean, that was kind of a big event. Um, uh, So why an extra event afterwards? And I think another related reason is the ascension is often neglected because the resurrection, again, it gets all the attention. And the ascension is just kind of lumped into that. Kind of one event. The resurrection and ascension. And so it might be easy to think kind of conceptually, they're pretty much the same thing. And again, we give a lot of attention to the resurrection, which is important, not wrong, but it's just incomplete. In fact... Uh, we have three daughters. I actually have four kids. My three oldest are girls. We had a surprise baby boy this last year, which was incredible, a great gift of the Lord. But, but I have three older daughters, 
And like many little girls, they've always loved princess stories. Um, and anyone who's read a fairy tale, we all know the way they typically begin and end, right? They usually begin once upon a time, right? And they usually end, they live happily ever after, right? And, and basically, that's just an easy way to end the story. There's really no regard about what happens afterwards, what life is like after that. It's just kind of like this generic statement about a happy life between uh, the prince and the princess. And I think sometimes, if we're not careful, uh, we kind of might think of Jesus kind of the same way. right? Like he lived, he died, he rose again, and he lived happily ever after without really giving any thought to what that resurrected life entails. But again, we understand that far from a fairy tale, the real resurrection, the real ascension of Jesus has real significance for our lives today as well as for all eternity. And so what I want to do this morning, our text really gives us this opportunity to think about the ascension. Um, and look at why, why is the ascension so much more than just this accessory to the, uh, to the resurrection? Again, it's more than just the cherry on top. The ascension is, is not just the exclamation point for the resurrection. It's a new event. It's a new stage in redemptive history, and it has unique implications for our lives here and now. And so that's what I want us to focus on this morning, is the ascension of Jesus, this incredible event. What does it mean? Why is it important for us today? Before you do that, I want us to look at how Luke actually begins his second book in our New Testament. You knew that Luke had another book, right? The book of Acts. So we saw the end of Luke. Look at how he begins the next book. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Again, notice, Luke says, everything I wrote about in my gospel was what Jesus began to do, began to teach. In other words, all of that, all 24 chapters, all of his life, was what he began to do. It was only the beginning. I mean, the work of atoning for our sins is done, massively important, but there's certainly more for Jesus to do now that that work has been completed. In fact, part of that work, Scripture says, is is Jesus' continual ministry of intercession, that he intercedes for you and me. Uh, But this morning, what I want us to focus on is on a little bit different truth that the ascension points us to, and it's that the ascension marks the installation of Jesus as king. This morning, we're going to look at this connection between the kingly role of Jesus and his ascension, and then what that means for us today, that we live under the reigning King Jesus, who's ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now, the idea of living under a king is a pretty foreign concept for us as Americans, right? And I think this really does impact the way we view Jesus as Lord, and impacts the way we live in this new reality we call the kingdom of God. Uh, Again, uh, uh, most of us, I'm assuming, have never lived under a monarch. Uh, I think, in fact, as Americans, we kind of typically scoff at the idea of a king or a queen who has absolute rule over us. 
I mean, every summer, what do we do? We, we hold our annual celebration of rebelling against a king to gain our independence, and we do that by shooting off fireworks and grilling hamburgers. I mean, it's a great day. We love that. So again, the idea of Jesus as king, and that being a good thing, maybe takes a little bit more work for us to kind of grasp and submit our hearts to, but it's a concept that's so important in the storyline of Scripture, and it's a reality in redemptive history. Again, Jesus is king, and the ascension marks that uh, truth. Now, to understand the kingly role of Jesus, we find some help in our thinking from some Old Testament texts, okay? So just very briefly, at creation, if you remember, Adam and Eve, they're created and they're placed in the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden is given a really unique description later in Ezekiel 28. Okay, listen to what it says. Ezekiel 28, verse 13. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. Okay? So, in the Garden of Eden, the description here is that the Garden of Eden is like the holy mountain of the Lord. The mountain of the Lord. And there on that mountain, so to speak, Adam and Eve are placed as the royal family, as it were. Made to rule over creation. However, we we know the story, right? They, They decide to rebel against their king, and they're cast out of the garden. Right? So Ezekiel goes on to say, verse 15, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created, till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, a guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. In other words, here you are, Adam and Eve, placed on the mountain of God, cast out because of unrighteousness. In other words, because of their sin, what are they forced to do? They're forced to descend the mountain of God. And the rest of the story of Scripture really is is man's attempt to re-ascend the mountain of God. To be there once again, to stand in the place of God. We see this most literally in Genesis 11, a few chapters later at Babel, right? When the people attempt to build this tower that literally reaches the heavens, what are they trying to do? They're trying to ascend back to the place of the Lord. In the rest of humanity, though, we've been trying to ascend on our own. Whether that's by good works, whether that's by following strict religious rules, or just by declaring themselves as the king of their own mountain, rejecting the mountain of the Lord. But the Old Testament prepares us for this coming one who's going to come and re-ascend the mountain. Who's actually going to restore all things and even increase the fellowship humanity once had with God. And so because Adam descended, listen, the last Adam, Jesus, ascends the mountain of the Lord. And so there's a number of Old Testament texts that describe this event. When this coming true king would ascend the mountain of the Lord, now I'll just point out a few of them. Psalm 2 is one of them. Psalm 2 describes the lordship of Christ over the nations who rebel against him. And here's what the psalmist writes. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What's he saying there? That that even though the nations rebel against the Lord, the King, we we get a glimpse of this conversation between the Father and the Son when Jesus ascends and the Lord just kind of laughs at the nations who rage against him and installs Jesus as king over all nations. There's one example. Another example, uh, later in the Psalms, we find Psalm 110, verse 1. This is the most quoted verse in all of, uh, most quoted Old Testament verse in all of the New Testament here. Uh, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. There's a lot to notice in just that one verse, right? Three important points here. When it comes to the ascension of Jesus, notice the action. Jesus sits. Uh, of course, this doesn't mean that Jesus is just kind of relaxing up, up in heaven with his feet kicked up, like he doesn't have anything to do till he returns. It, it just designates completeness that Jesus accomplished all that he was sent to earth to do. Right? Notice the location. He's seated, seated at the right hand of the Father. I mean, this is the place of highest rank. Right? We use that phrase, the right hand man or right hand woman. Uh, today, we use that to describe that person who holds power by proximity. The one closest to us, therefore, holds special rank above all other people. But also points to a future. Right? Jesus' ascension and his enthronement was a, was a glorious day, but it's not the final day. Right? Jesus sits enthroned until all his enemies become his footstool. So for now, Jesus reigns at the right hand of the Father... But there's a day when, G, when uh, coming when he will reign in all of his fullness. So, so like, understand, when, when Jesus ascended into the clouds, it was not to just, like, float around in space. Like, he ascended to the throne. He went to the Father as the chosen king, set on the holy hill of the Lord. And this reminds us, right, that Jesus is more than just an influential moral teacher. He's not just this elevated spiritual man. Jesus is the resurrected Son of God who reigns as King over all. And so the New Testament is just filled with passages that were written to remind God's people of the Lordship of Christ and everything that means for us. So if Jesus is King, the church is the royal family, His kingdom on earth, and, and understanding that truth and believing that truth should shape the way in which we live with one another. It should change the way that we live and view those outside of the kingdom. And so what I want to do the rest of our time this morning, I just want us to consider just four ways the ascension of Jesus, along with its significance, shapes the way we live in the kingdom. And I think, first of all, it means that there should be unity in the kingdom. There should be unity in the kingdom. Again, the reign of King Jesus, the one who ascended, the stalled king, is the truth that Paul actually points to 
when he calls the church to unity. Notice what he says in Ephesians 4. This is verses 1 through 6. He writes to this church in Ephesus and he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Now what's Paul getting at there? He's saying we have one King that we all live under. In fact, one theologian pointed out, if one king sits on the throne, then he's all people's peace, no matter what gender, race, or socioeconomic status, because he's broken down the walls of hostility. In other words, because there's one king, we're all united under the one king. Unfortunately, if you've been in church for any length of time, we don't always seem to act like it. Right? In fact, at times, church can feel way more like a very dark period of Israel's history before there were any kings at all. And if you're familiar with that series uh, or that season of, of Israel's life, the book of Judges especially, it, it tells about this cycle, this terrible cycle within the life of the people of God. If you remember this, this part of, of Israel's history where, where they would sin egregiously against the Lord, God would send judgment on them by an oppressive nation. They would repent because it was so terrible. And God would have mercy on the nation of Israel. He would raise up a judge or a deliverer to deliver them from the oppression. And Israel would have peace. And then they would egregiously sin against the Lord. And God would send a a judgment by way of oppression. And the cycle just kept going over and over and over again. And it just got progressively worse throughout the book of Judges. But listen to the very last verse in the book of Judges. This is how it ends. Verse uh, 25, chapter 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I mean, the hard truth is we often do the same. I mean, whatever's right in our own eyes. And this is shown in our lack of grace, unforgiveness, shown in our division and love of controversy. It's as if we've forgotten that we live in the same kingdom under the one king. And so we end up setting up our own kingdoms, setting ourselves as king of those kingdoms. But I understand that we're not competing kings and queens of our own rival kingdoms. I mean, we're fellow citizens. We're fellow citizens of one kingdom who live under one king. And listen, that king is not a pastor. That king is not an outspoken church member. That king is not an influential voice in our culture. That king is King Jesus. Therefore, be eager, Paul says, to maintain unity. Why? Because we have one king. There's one kingdom. And the ascension of Jesus reminds us of that. That he reigns over us. And so we're unified under that. Second thing, the ascension of Jesus should also give us confidence in mission. Should give us confidence in mission. Before he ascends, Jesus gives his disciples and he gives us what's called the Great Commission. I'm sure you guys have heard that 
Matthew chapter 28, just a few verses here. The end of the book of Matthew. And Jesus came and said to them, to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Again, the commission Jesus gives to his disciples and to us is we're called to the nations to make disciples. That we're called to go and tell them the good news of the gospel, to to call them to repentance and belief, to baptize them, to see that they grow in their new relationship under King Jesus. And that's a huge task. I mean, overwhelming even, isn't it? But notice, Jesus did not simply say, okay, I did my part. Now you do your part. Like, go to the nations. If you need me, I'll be in heaven. Um, I died. I rose again. Now you go. Right? That's your task. I've finished mine. And what does Jesus say there? He says, this is a big task, but you don't do it alone. He says, I, the one who reigns with all authority, not some authority, not the majority of authority, but all authority in heaven and on earth, by my spirit, go with you. You don't face this task alone. I mean, that ought to give us incredible confidence, isn't it? As we go out from here into a, a hostile world to point people to Jesus, I mean, this ought to give you confidence. As you try to share Jesus with your coworker, who already knows about your faith, but continues to reject it, and maybe you're just frustrated because you just don't know what else to do or say. I mean, this ought to give you confidence as you try to share Jesus, uh, maybe with unbelieving family or friends who, who maybe knew your life before you came to faith in, in Christ, and you feel like because they know that, that undermines your credibility. I mean, this ought to give you confidence as you wrestle with the idea. Maybe God's calling me to go overseas to serve Him, and you just feel completely unqualified and complete, completely inadequate for the mission. Again, listen. Jesus, the ascended reigning king over all, goes with us as we go for him. Don't let the mission overwhelm you. Go in confidence. Again, the reigning king is with you. Again, the ascension of Jesus should promote unity in the kingdom. It should give us confidence in mission. But it should also produce patience and suffering. Patience and suffering. And the reason it should is because the pattern of life's Christ, uh, Christ's life and ministry is one of descending before ascending. In other words, Jesus went to the cross before he ascended to glory. And as followers of Jesus, what happens is we follow the same pattern. The same pattern of descent before ascent. And again, we lay down our life so that we can find it. In baptism, we go underwater that we can be raised up. That we go down with Christ so that we might rise with Christ. Like Jesus, we suffer before we're glorified. In fact, uh, Patrick Schreiner, another theologian, he notes, Christ's rule does not mean the church is called to go out and rule the world. Christ's kingship does not cancel out the harsh and wretched condition of life for Christ's legion. Christ's kingship is, is in heaven, and therefore the church's royalty is hidden with him. 
And so we're called time and time again throughout Scripture to remember the reign of Christ and our union with Him there as we endure the difficulties of living out our faith here. The largest example is the entire book of Revelation. Okay, And the book of Revelation is a book that either fascinates you or repels you, maybe because just because of the vivid imagery within the text. But as difficult as the book of Revelation can be to interpret, the big idea of the book is that it was written to give the church a glimpse of the reign of Christ throughout history, all the way through his return in full reign in the New Jerusalem. And the, the reason it was given, it was to give hope. To give hope to believers of every age, that regardless of the difficulties we face for our faith, Jesus is on the throne, and he reigns, and he will reign for all eternity. And because that's true, we lean into that truth if we suffer. Because we will suffer. It's a call for perseverance. As God's people endured the difficulties of this age until the coming age when Christ returns. And I just want you to notice one portion of the book. This is a letter to the church in Smyrna. This, this offers us one example of the call to patient suffering uh, in light of Christ's reign. Revelation chapter 2, this is verse 9 and 10. Speaking to this church, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Now notice what he didn't say. I know that you're about to face suffering, so fight back. I know that you're about to face suffering, so lawyer up. Reclaim culture. No, he said, don't be afraid. Be faithful. Why? Because we follow Jesus in his descent before we follow him in his ascent. But the ascension and reign of Christ reminds us that glory is guaranteed. That time isn't yet. We patiently wait for the return of the king. But we do so with confidence, knowing that because of his glory, we too will be glorified with him. And so we patient in our suffering because of the ascension of Jesus. But the ascension of Jesus should also produce, fourthly, joyful worship in the waiting. And in fact, in John 16, we read this encounter between Jesus and his disciples where he tells them, hey, I'm, I'm going to go away. I'm not always going to be with you. And the disciples are really sorrowful. Like, they don't want to see that happen. They're sad about it. And yet, at the end of Luke, where we look this morning, we read that after they see him ascend to heaven, are they sorrowful? No. I mean, they're joyfully praising him. I mean, this should be the natural response to the reign of our King and Savior, Jesus. This is what they did through the book of Acts. This is what the church has done throughout history. This is what we do today. Because we know that Jesus reigns. Even though we might walk through suffering, we're joyful. I mean, again, for everything we read and see, even just in Luke, for example, what happens? Jesus' birth is celebrated by angels. Even though he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he was perfectly obedient to the Father, victorious where Adam failed. Jesus miraculously cures the sick, heals the disabled, feeds the hungry, raises the dead. Jesus displays unmatched wisdom in his teaching, often stopping the mouths of the religious leaders with his parables and probing questions. 
Jesus shows his love in seeking the lost and lonely people we meet in Luke's account. All sinful people like you and me. But most of all, what do we worship Jesus for? For his work in salvation. For his courageous sufferings. For his sacrificial atoning death. For his triumphant resurrection. And yes, his glorious ascension to reign over all. As we await the return of our king, what do we do? We wait with joyful worship. We're not without hope. You and I are not without a leader. We're not without guaranteed victory. We find all of that in Jesus, our King. And so we joyfully worship. If you know the opening passage of Luke's gospel, Luke says that he desired to write all of that as an orderly account of the life of ministry of Jesus for a particular reason. He says, I write all of this because I want you to be certain of the things taught about him. And from there, if you know the rest of the gospel, the birth of John the Baptist is foretold by an angel, then the birth of Jesus is foretold. And so the coming of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, is the focus of the opening chapter of Luke. And then Luke ends the gospel with the ascension of Jesus. And so Luke frames the, the life and ministry of Jesus with this coming and going of Jesus. And another theologian, he writes, between Jesus' coming and Jesus is going, they sum up Luke's message of salvation, that the pre-existent and eternal Son of God came to our world. He became a man like us so that He might secure for us here in this world forgiveness, wholeness, peace with God, and the certainty that God's will shall eventually be done on earth as is done in heaven. But there's more. By His going, He's taken humanity to the pinnacle of the universe. All who trust him will one day be brought to share his glory in that exalted realm and to reign with him at his return. So if you've never trusted in Christ, the one who came to save and the one who ascended to reign, the one who is coming again to bring about the end of death and sin and Satan, we would implore you to turn from your sin, to turn from your self-righteousness and trust in Christ, the risen King. But for those of us who've done that, let's remember what it's taught us about Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God who's taken away the sins of, our, of us. That he's rose from the dead. And now he reigns over the kingdom we're now a part of. And today we're united to him there while we wait here for his eventual return. And this is good news. The ascension of Jesus means so much for us. Again, we live under risen King Jesus. And one day we'll see his fullness when he returns. Let's pray this morning, though. Father, we're just so grateful today for the opportunity again to come before your throne in prayer. And Father, we acknowledge this morning that it really is your throne. That it's a throne because you are the king. That you are the king above all other kings. And we confess this morning that we too often regard you as far less than that. Lord, setting ourselves up as our own kings, we look to our own guidance. We look to our own understanding. We elevate our own plans. We choose our own versions of right and wrong. All the while not recognizing the rebellion that we're committing. And so, Lord, we pray, please forgive us. Father, forgive us for losing sight of you on your throne and everything that means for us today. 
Father, forgive us for not maintaining unity in your kingdom. Father, forgive us for not being confident in the mission you've given us. Father, forgive us for not being patient and bold in our suffering for our faith. And Father, forgive us for not joyfully worshiping you as you deserve. Lord, we pray, Lord, would you produce in us your people, hearts and lives that resemble the people who live under your good rule and reign. And Father, as we look at this last passage in Luke, we're once again grateful for the detailed and trustworthy record of the life and ministry of Jesus that you've blessed us with. Father, we pray that your spirit would make us more Christ-like as a result of our time in your word today. As always, we want to pray if if there's someone who does not know you as their Savior, someone who's not submitted to your good rule and reign, Lord, would you draw them to yourself and give them faith today? Father, again, we're grateful that Jesus reigns today. And Lord, we pray, God, would you help us set our hearts and our minds on that truth today and the week you have in front of us. And we patiently wait for your return, that you would reign in all of your fullness. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name today.